Hello and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host, Titus, and today I am joined by two of my friends, Carl Eric Scott and Flag Taylor, for a discussion of Wit Stillman movies. First of all, Carl, please introduce yourself. You're new to the podcast, and I'm grateful to have you here. Hello, yes, I'm coming to you from Utah, where I work at the Center for Constitutional Studies at Utah Valley University, and I'm also an adjunct professor. Great, so you're working on Witt Stillman. Do you want to tell us a bit about it? Sure. It's for a forthcoming book, and it will be a discussion of Witt Stillman's films and social dance. I think it's a very important topic in his films, and the two films we're going to talk about today, Damsels in Distress and Last Days of Disco, are highly focused on that theme. Yes, indeed. Well, Flag, hello. How are you? I'm doing well. It's great to be here as always. Oh, I'm grateful to have you back. And so, uh, Carl, let's start with Damsels in Distress. Okay, uh, great. Start us off. Damsels in Distress is a departure from what we had previously seen from Whit Stillman. His first three movies, Metropolitan, Barcelona, and Last Days of Disco, had a certain continuity, chronicling the lives of a small group of young Americans. The trilogy, which you might call a preppy group, but more precisely described in the movie Metropolitan as the urban haute bourgeoisie, people that went to prep schools, studied at places like Harvard or Hampshire, and those three films take us through their early college years, that's Metropolitan. They're just out of college years in Last Days of Disco and their early career years in Barcelona. And it's pretty clear from anything Stillman has said that this were his experiences in many ways. He was an expat in Spain. He attended the Studio 54 disco club that his club is partially modeled on. And so it's ground that he knows well. When we get to Damsels in Distress, however, is contemporary. And it's not his peer group. It's a Northeastern liberal arts college called Seven Oaks, but it's a more fantastical, satirical setting, and it's dealing with a generation that's not Stillman's own. I know both of you have said before, the first three movies are narratives of decline. Formality loses out to informality. Even informal groups scattered by the end of the plot. Manners disappear. Education is in decline too. Well, Damsels in Distress, the first story Stillman concocts without autobiographical elements, is superficially similar. It's the story of a failed dance craze. A group of four girls named for flowers, Violet, Rose, Heather, and newcomer Lily, try to save young people for social life. This obviously fails. Violet, the leader of the group, talks with an uncanny combination of wit and witlessness about beautiful and pleasant and attractive things in order to keep kids away from suicide or boorishness. The more she makes a fool of herself, the more she seems to be right, both about the importance of these seemingly unimportant things and about the fact that the young men urgently need them. She seems sweet, she has a kind of charm, but it's not clear that she can ever succeed. How do you think Stillman wants us to characterize Violet's project for reform or social rejuvenation? Yeah, I think Stillman is forward. It has absurd elements that the Lily character rightly says towards the end of the movie. She says, you know, I think there needs to be this sort of mass of normal people that uphold normal standards. And that's not Violet's program. Violet is bringing an idiosyncratic mix of perfume expertise, fashion, 
dance, tap dance, Fred Astaire musicals. She wants to invent a new Latin step. She even talks about these things as effective therapies for depression. So it's a very odd program, but I think Stillman believes in it in certain ways. I wrote a piece, for example, for the blog Postmodern Conservative, where I said maybe he's right that if schools were to spend more time colleges promoting social dance, like hiring a dance instructor instead of hiring another lawyer that will try to police students for their sexual consent type stuff, they might actually do a better job of their undergraduates. Yeah. yeah, dance instructors instead of chief diversity officer. Yeah, that'd be really more what I have in mind. Yeah. <laughs> so part of what Damsel in Distress is trying to point out is that the only solution to student problems is thinking through their actual needs as young men and young women and supplying something for those needs. And if it is yeah. not possible to segregate the sexes, they have to be accommodated in their togetherness, fraught with peril as that is. The fictional college Seven Oaks was the last male college to be integrated, and that is Violet's explanation for why there are remnants of barbarism. And yeah. the implication there is, of course, that other colleges do not have that much manliness, barbaric or otherwise. But at Seven Oaks, there still is some remnant of the past with which the girls have to deal. What's weird about Violet in that sense is that she doesn't want to wipe out manliness. She wants to bother right. it too much, maybe, but she doesn't want to wipe it out. Now that it is integrated, you do have to deal with men and women together. That means either what America can offer you, kangaroo courts, hysteria, condoms in every door, and therapy or things like that. Or on the other hand, this kind of seemingly crazy idea of social dancing. But that is a way of bringing young people together, which had been tried previously in America with great successes. Yeah. In and I would say Violet's program as a whole... She calls it youth outreach. But as Lily says, well, we're youth also. It's connected at the hip with her own needs. So Violet is a social reformer, but also someone making her own life better. I think that's a big thing. There really needs to be some leadership on the part of young people themselves. So the social dance is really central here, but... It, but it's not necessarily the only program for social reform. One more yeah. thing, Titus. I would also just say that my reading of it is that Stillman intends Seven Oaks College to not necessarily so much reflect its status. It's really pointing more to the situation everywhere. There's a party that Violet and company attend where they say, well, isn't it great that nothing really awful happened? And the film is very light. Nonetheless, we're meant to have the kind of awful things that we read about on our own in mind. That's why damsels at many colleges are in distress. Yeah, that's true. There's only this one reference, but it is, I think, meant very seriously. Of course, the distress is complicated. The title sequence very smartly lists the actresses' names as damsels and then the actors' names as their distress. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, You yeah. can see that this is also an important lesson about romantic comedy. That's where women lead. My favorite example is Howard Hawks. If he's doing a tough guy Cary Grant drama, Only Angels Have Wings, 1939, then the man leads and he's very Hemingway-esque. But if he's doing a romantic comedy, like 1938's uh, Bringing Up Baby, then the woman leads and the man yeah. quite obviously follows her around or she chases him around or she forces him to follow her around. But either way, she's in charge and he is not. Yeah. And I think that also explains why there's not a lot of awful stuff happening or even hinted at in Damsels in Distress. There's just that one suggestion you mentioned. Isn't it nice we had the party and nothing awful happened? 
it's a rule of romantic comedy. You can only exist within boundaries where the women can lead the plot such that it's a romantic plot. I guess that's the one exception to the suggestion that nothing really awful is happening is by the end of the movie, you have lots of male students trying to commit suicide, but they're education students, so they're not bright enough to understand that if you jump from the second floor <laughs> window, you're only going to break your leg. You're not going to be successful killing yourself. So it's a very funny thing, but it's obviously about a very dark yeah. subject. Yeah. Right. And so something similar to that would be the Xavier graduate student who convinces one of our damsels, Lily, into, well, heterosexual sodomy. This actually has been discussed in many pieces as a part of the rape crisis problem or what have you. It's a dark subject, but still presents it in kind of absurdist, satirical light of this guy believes he's a Cathar and they have a restriction against procreative sexuality. So that's why he does it. But obviously the film is alluding to serious and depressing problems, suicide, male mistreatment of women, poor education. But it's doing so in a very light-handed way that makes it delightful to laugh at these things. Yeah. Those are the boundaries within which this can still be funny. Otherwise, it could go really dark really fast. Yeah. And uh, there is an alternative for thoughtful people, and maybe especially for conservatives in America, to damsels in distress. That's Tom Wolfe and its drama, and it's I Am Charlotte Simmons. That's right. A novel of which, of course, Whit Stillman was aware. And in that case, things aren't funny. You still have a female leading the plot from the title page. I Am Charlotte Simmons, a very manly young woman who asserts her identity and mm -hmm. who tries to make a place for herself and make a path for herself and who goes through awful stuff actually which still one doesn't want to go that way so you could say that the rule of comedy is to tell the whole of the truth through the beautiful side of the truth the non-dangerous side of the truth it can show you some ugly things how vulgar male students can be that's the most obvious one in damsels in distress but there are some parts of ugliness that it cannot reach and still be a romantic comedy, especially. Mm -hmm. uh, and he does point out to the things he's leaving out of the plot. And there's a question about why is he leaving them out of the plot? He's obviously aware of these things that lie beyond the scope of the story. He alludes to them, but he does not give them a thematic treatment. They have to be marginal in relation to what in the real world would be marginal. The truth about characters like Violet and her friends is that they would be marginal in any American college. But in this case, right. the marginal is the central. Yeah, they're not central. See, the film ends a fantasy note. There's two scenes where you have all the characters doing the social dances, the Fred Astaire musical and the Zambola dance. But what you have to recognize earlier in the film, we saw that Violet's effort to start a new dance craze, which she describes as one of her highest ambitions, fails. When she introduces the Zambola in actuality, we might say, hardly anyone shows up. Mm -hmm. So seeing everyone dance at the end is her fantasy and I think Stillman's fantasy being played out, but she is marginal. I'd also just quickly add that Stillman has said in recent interviews, or I think the audio commentary to Last Days, he definitely says he finds female characters more interesting. And part of it is with romantic affairs, he feels they actually have more of the say, the combination of the leadership and a passive situation where will the male ask me out or something along those lines. And I see him saying this in almost every interview. He's fed up with a lot of the criticisms on the basis of realism of his various films. And so I think with Damsels, he just said, well, let's just let it fly. Let's just be as fantastically satirical as we can be and forget about those people that will criticize me for that. 
Yeah, mm-hmm. it is true that in previous movies he had tried to be realistic, at least in some ways. Whereas in this case, he puts you through the comic ringer. You laugh at a lot of stuff, but are you laughing because these people are obviously wrong, but not obvious to themselves? Or are you laughing because you're wrong, but you can't admit it? And they're in fact right. <laughs> they're always ridiculous, but they're not always wrong by any stretch of the imagination. So he forces you to do something that almost nothing in American cinema does this now. For a comedy to be a comedy, that means by default it's got to be funny. And everything you see has got to be laughable. But not everything is laughable because it's wrong. We tend to look down on the laughable. And of course, that's why comic actors don't get Oscars. And that's why the Best Picture Award, especially the Award for Sentimentality, it doesn't go to comedies. And why Cary Grant, whom everyone thinks of as the star, was never nominated for any of his comedies. If you ever look up Cary Grant on IMDb, you see he has two Oscar nominations for utterly mediocre sentimental tripe. <laughs> but for all the great comedies everybody remembers him for, nothing, not even a nomination. That is mm. both the popular and the prestigious opinion about the relationship between comedy and merit. Whereas utterly mediocre actors who appeared in a great drama, they're thought of as great actors because in the public mind, they take on the greatness of the drama. The, yeah. But it's much harder to be respectful of and thoughtful about that which you laugh at. Yeah, right. So it's just a yeah, I think... harder thing to sell. And here we should do a quick salute to the actors who played Frank and Thor, who actually convinced us that these guys had never yet learned the colors. Yeah. <laughs> yeah Thor, in a way, is one of the most sympathetic characters in the film. What, Maybe why do you say that? Carl's suggestion a few moments ago was, of course, that Violet's project fails, no one comes to the dance. I was also going to add that her project related to mailing the bars of soap also fails. The men use the envelopes as frisbees, and they they don't. And so maybe we should ask this big question, what the takeaway is supposed to be, given that Violet, in some sense, is a failure. And maybe we can allow that to talk explicitly about the arc of the film, which we haven't done yet. So we meet these three young college students, Violet, and our two friends, Heather and Rose, at an event at the beginning of the year. The film starts in September. They come upon Lily, who's a transfer student. And then we follow that foursome as they navigate their relationships with men and try to start these dance crazes. And then, uh, as Carl suggested, by the end of the film, it's clear that their projects for reform have failed. And the film concludes with these two distinct fantasy sequences. So I just wonder what Stillman wants us to take away at the end. We're in decline and there's not much to be done about it. Or what do we think? How do we think we're supposed to take that twofold fantasy ending? I think one takeaway could just be that someone like Violet just needs more allies. Some of these reform projects are going to seem kind of hopeless in our day and age. But again, I come back to that line about, well, civilization may be some aspects of it now are really bad, but you still have to live on. You still have to wake up in the morning and do your best at this dismal college. The other thing I would say is that the social reform might not be the be-all and end-all for him. In a way, he's more interested in how these characters, particularly Violet, respond to partial failure of their program. I say partial because they have some successes. Eventually, those guys do open those envelopes and use the soap to clean themselves up a little bit. Um, But Violet, obviously, is a character we admire, but she has some serious problems. She has a moment in the film where her approach to social reform, the way it's linked to her dubious strategy of of dating way, way down, someone who's much less intelligent than her. That's her self-described strategy. Yeah. It harms her, and this guy breaks up with her, and she um, is thrown into a deep depression, suggestion that maybe she's even suicidal. 
She's obviously got her own issues to work out alongside being a leader for social reform on the campus. That's yeah. certainly true. And there's another one of these ambiguous notes at the ending. Her black friend speaks with an English accent because she wants to spend six weeks there and she can't give it up. Violet is never suspicious of anybody and that turns out to be stupid. Her friend is always suspicious of every young man and that turns out to be stupid. But as mm. friends, if they could get together on this, they'd be quite wise. So also Violet is is excessively down-to-earth, which involves a kind of unpleasant condescension. She thinks that if a guy is stupid, that means he must be moral. How condescending is that? Yeah. He's too stupid to cheat. I didn't see this coming at all. Not from someone like you. Maybe yeah. better men would cheat, but not somebody as low as you. Mm. Whereas her friend uh, is so haughty, that's why she loves her English accent. Americans love an English accent. Because of her haughtiness, she thinks that protects her. That's the protection yeah. that comes out of her suspiciousness. I just think the word that Rose uses is significant. She says everyone is an operator. Yes, yes. Playboy operator type. Exactly. Out to get man. Everyone's out to get something. You can't trust anybody for that reason. You see that there's some kind of hope in that Violet tells her at the end, I miss my American friend. And then you learn the truth about the short London vacation that uh, created this entire new identity. The girl was not at all English, not at all sophisticated. She just put that on as an act because we all try to seem our best, sound our best, look our best. Apparently at the end certain truths can be said that hadn't been mentioned at all before. So that is a sign of progress, personal, not social. Right. And in a certain way it's more important for that reason. But this is not a conquest. The girl doesn't just drop her old identity. That doesn't happen in the real world. At least not without conversion, let's say. And this is not a movie about conversion. But you do see this greater truth and greater insight, just like her own depression, helps Violet to learn about who she is and to come to terms with her own troubles to an extent and to be more truthful, at least, to other people. That's the big thing that happens in the movie. These people begin to be truthful. And some of them correct their ways, like the cretinous French grad student. He begins to see the error of his actions, and yeah. Lily has moments of truth with Violet that bring them together in a certain way, even if they're not going to spend their college years as the closest of friends. And all these things do show a kind of promise. It makes the entire film seem like it's pointing in this direction, that self-understanding has to come to an extent first. But self-understanding is not going to come without failure. But it's got to right. be a very specific kind of failure. If this failure to transform society happens within the context of friendship, within the context of a certain insistence on formality, within the context of a certain preference for the beautiful and the pleasant, then mm -hmm. it can work as an education. And I think that is the true education of the movie and the only sense in which you can earn that fantasy. Yeah, since you're saying the movie is about friendship and about what Stillman calls in the last days of disco, group social life. There's a kind of blurring between the reform program and the women's own relationships. Because after all, their social reform program is, is we're going to have more friends joining us in these dances and these other activities. So again, it's connected at the hip with their own happiness. Yeah, I'll have to cut out in a minute. But the interesting connection I wanted to raise between the two films is, is between two characters, Violet and her understanding of the importance of dance. She gives that speech in that class about the three right. dance founders. I think an interesting comparison can be made with Violet in that speech and the character Josh from Last Days, who's the lawyer who mounts an elaborate defense of disco on two different occasions and has this hopelessly idealistic understanding of what a club is. 
Right. You contrast what the club really is, which is this den of iniquity <laughs> and all sorts of crime is occurring there, right? And it's just exclusive in all the wrong ways. And he thinks it's this place where people come to share ideas, <laughs> all of this. And so he seems to kind of see the world in a similar way that Violet does. Yeah, that's a great point. Well, Flag, I'm sorry you have to leave us, but sometime soon we'll be recording the great movie, The Lives of Others. Sounds good. We'll be in touch. Thanks a lot. And, uh, yep. We'll talk Thanks again soon. Have a great day. Thank you, Flag. Okay, Carl. I think Flag is on to something important here with the connection between idealistic, somewhat foolish characters, but nevertheless the characters the movie rewards with self-understanding and some real chance at happiness. One way I think about this is this. In both Last Days of Disco and Damsels in Distress, you find characters making very principled statements that often turn out to be self-deluded and in certain ways self-interested. Violet is trying to start a suicide prevention center partly because she's aware of her own fragility and she wants to reach out to other people in a way that does not expose her to harm, she thinks. If somebody's suicidal, they're pathetic. They're no threat to you. And you can see this because of her relationship with boys. She wants to date boys whom she looks down on in partly a true way, but partly a prejudiced way, because they're not a threat. Then, it turns out, you can still be heartbroken by somebody you hold in contempt. She gets suicidal and she becomes in need of her other silly idea that's not working for her. She has to find something else to even live with herself in her misery. All her concoctions and plans fail because they were always based on this combination of self-interest. I don't want to be endangered by other people. And self-delusion. Oh, if I look down on people, then there can be no harm. That's the way in which she's exactly identical to the audience of a comedy. The self-delusion of the audience of the comedy is known to everybody and nobody takes it seriously. We all know satire is about somebody we're making fun of, but we never want to believe it's us. Only Mm. other people can be objects of satire. That is our self-delusion. And there is a self-involvement there, too. We want comedy to make us feel better about life, to make us think things are going to work out. Comedy is tyrannized by the need for a happy ending. Everything has to be shaped to that purpose. And that's also who Violet is. She starts us off because she's exactly who we are. She's way too idealistic, and that means she's split apart in between a certain self-seeking and a certain self-forgetfulness. I believe that that's why she's attracted to a man who is as much a deceiver, who lies about who he is, as she lies about who she is. When she can start to have the honest conversation and the learning conversation with another person. She sees herself in somebody else. Finally, she can stop talking down to people. Up till that point, whenever somebody pointed out to her how arrogant she was, she would take the chastisement, as she calls it, but it would never lead to anything. She never was equals, actually, even with the new member Lily. Told her rough truths, but needful truths. She would accept them, but they never landed, actually, because she couldn't see herself in that girl. But she does see herself in a boy who is interested in literature in a personal way, but on the other hand is lying about who he is, making up a story about himself to make himself seem more independent, more successful, more self-complete, less needy. Yeah, I think that that's one of the things Fred Charlie is his false name, but he's revealed to be Fred, and he's definitely helpful. We talked about the false or the fantasy happy endings with the social dance sequences, but we should note that there is an actual happy 
happy ending with the suggestion that Fred and Violet are going to be a couple and that they are fairly well suited for one another. There's nothing totally firm about that, but that seems to be the direction things are heading in. So that's one real happy ending. And another element to that, she hears first that Charlie's actually Fred. She recognizes him and thinks, oh, I saw this guy before. They turn out to have a similar past in the sense of a similar interest in a certain literary course. And that connects them immediately on a superficial level, but also on a deeper level because they both live fake lives. But when he hears about her, he confuses her for someone he had loved as a child, a colleague mm-hmm. in school. He was always already prepared to love Violet. When he right. hears who she is, he recognizes her instantly. Turns out that it's false recognition. It's not the girl he went to school with. But that fictional past is true, ultimately. They are similar in a way that they could love each other and help each other. And of course, there is also something to be said for a happy ending on a somewhat lower level. Thor learns not only that you can learn the colors, but that it is such a joyous experience. This is another one of these comic moments that you wonder how deep does it really go when it seems superficial. This guy now can name all the colors of the rainbow, and he's super excited about that in a way that nobody after the age of 7 or 8 can really be. And that's superficial, but again, the experience of childhood here, like with Fred's own childhood, is about genuine goodness. Proves at some level that there is learning so that you can look forward to good things. It proves that he can learn from a woman, above all. He doesn't have to be a frat boy all his life. That larger point, aside from its particular example here, is very important for his future. And of course, ultimately, you wonder what does the rainbow mean? Right, it could point to the promise in Genesis. And there are, as there always are in Stillman films, various allusions to Christianity or biblical religion more broadly. And that's one of the ways in which we begin to get some hope hope that maybe not at Seven Oaks, but maybe some point down the line, the good qualities of the Violet character and the good qualities that are only revealed very late in the film of the Rose character could be in some ways combined because the Rose character early on in the film Violet is praising humility after being chastised by Lily, maybe a superficial praise of humility, but nonetheless it's there. It says it's because we're Judeo-Christians, so of course we have to be humble. And Rose says, well, I've never really, humility is a gift, and I've never really had that gift. I've always been focused on my pride. And, and she's a very unattractive character most of the film. She just has these stock phrases that she throws out that prejudge guys, operator, playboy type, confidence man. She actually likes Charlie slash Fred, so she's not even really true to her own strictures. And then at the very end of the film, I can't remember if it's after the scene revealing her adoption of an English accent when they're on the park bench, but there's a point where she says, God gave us these abilities, and so we have a duty to fulfill them. She likes the words that point to the finer things and those kinds of aspirations. So she sees a Christian or religious imperative to seek out your highest virtues and your best excellences. This is one of the places where religion is alluded to in the film. At the very least, you don't know how theological this should get, but you do get a sense that that rainbow there is not just about learning to see colors, which could be done in any other number of ways. But because of what you see with these other characters, it implies a providence of a certain kind, that the natural faculties of the human beings point in the direction of the good, that the fulfillment of those qualities is good both individually and collectively. That is the theoretical context for social dancing, just like in a narrower sense, the statement of the characters, which usually hide their self-interest and blow out of proportion their insights, 
their insights aren't actually great, but they are true. But their abstract statements tend to just go too far. Whereas social dancing is makes these things truer than they would otherwise be in the specific sense that your self-interest and your contribution to a common good are both immediately present. In social dancing, you are contributing to your community in a helpful way and taking pleasure and learning for yourself. It's the only experience of a common good in that story. Now, in that story, it's only common to a small number of people, but it gives them immediately a romantic possibility that they hadn't had before, and it suggests a certain potential for growth. There's no need to keep it to the level of only six or seven people. It could grow and fits with the abstract or universal character of statements of how we should live or what we should do, and it fits with each person's desire to find a personal fulfillment in the way of a couple and in the way of a larger group what Peter Lawler would call our relational being. It is both a pleasure and a good. And a lot of the story is about the problem with that. Can you really get to the good by way of the pleasant? And all those successes are actually very limited. The girls tell you that in their suicide prevention centers, they have hot cocoa and donuts for the truly depressed to help them experience some pleasure by way of searching for the good instead of suicide. But they've run into trouble because lots of students come in to take their donuts without being suicidally depressive. (laughs) Their next idea is to get to the good by way of the beautiful, not the pleasant. Donuts and cocoa are pleasant. But the envelopes in which they put soap are beautiful. And they try to get boys to start showering, to hide the good, the soap and washing and cleanliness, inside the beautiful smell and the beautiful envelope. And that turns out to be mostly, but not entirely, a failure. There you see the problem with these girls. They've never really thought through the problem of the good as related to the pleasant, the beautiful. So they don't really have a coherent strategy. They don't understand enough about their own needs in order to be able to put it together. Much less about other people and the problems that inhere not in individuality but sociality. But they are trying and the elements of their failure could be rearranged to form a success. Mm -hmm. In that sense, the story, if not their personal experiences, but the story does function as a manual. Okay, it fell apart for such and such reasons and the falling apart was the falling apart of such and such elements. Everything is present, it just doesn't come together. I think that's right. And I think the other thing that's really important is that Damsels in Distress is also an opportunity for Stillman to have some fun with himself, to mock himself. The Violet character, I'm on the fence on your interpretation about the good and the beautiful, the soap and so forth, but it comes up over and over again in Stillman's writing both in the one novelization he did and in the scripts. He feels there's a real connection between regular habits, cleanliness, and good mental health or good functioning. There's this one interview where he says, when I first wrote the script for Last Days of Disco, I read it and I thought it was horrible, but you know, I hadn't showered. And then I went and I showered and I read it and I actually thought it was good. Maybe he's joking around there too, but I think that Stillman actually is fairly serious about old standards in fashion, upholding some of them, about perfume, scent, (laughs) cleanliness, about the need for conversational social life, and about social dance. So the Violet character is this caricature of the Stillmanian guidebook to life. Stillman realizes that some of what he's recommended is Quixotic, is ridiculous, and somehow wrapped up with self-interest in certain instances. And so he wants to play with that, I think, in the Violet character in particular. And I'm enjoying this film more and more almost every time I see it. And I think I've seen it six or seven times now. 
This is a great thing to think about and I've only seen damsels in distress for the second time now. I was amused the first time but the second time I was much more impressed. Partly as you mentioned because the Violet character is so obviously saying what Stillman would tell you and he's willing to make fun of himself and this yes. is what sent me thinking about in which cases does he want you to laugh at him because this thing just can't be realized practically and in which cases yeah. does he want you to laugh at him because it's just ridiculous. There are things that are good that we just can't have or can't have right now or can't have yet or aren't ready for. But they're still good. It just takes a getting there. Other things, however, are just certain quirks or even weaknesses. Dancing, fashion and scent trifecta that Violet has going for her, which seems so utterly superficial, does have a serious core. Just like manners and conversation, which in a sense are superficial, they're not your soul, they're not your innermost, they're not the most lasting or enduring thing or the most basically necessary, but they are very important. One thing about scent, of course, is tied up with mood. It's an experience that's tied up literally with inspiration, and uh, you have to breathe in the scent and it comes inside of you, but at the same time it's about improving your mood, about getting better air, and that's part of what he's trying to reveal that you have to get in a certain mood. Just like damsels in distress takes a getting used to it, you have to become more lighthearted. Yes. And in that lightheartedness, you have to see the pleasant. You have to have a willingness to like these characters and to go along with them and see what you can discover there. That's been my experience, especially on reviewing. I like these people better and I'm noticing more and more details that I hadn't noticed before because I wasn't in the right mood. That right. meant in part that I didn't know what to look for. Yeah, maybe real quickly, we should report to our listeners that Stillman recently, he indicated this was actually his favorite of his five films so far. Yes, we talk on Twitter. I shared some notes on Damsels in Distress on Twitter, and he responded, especially on the issue of social dancing. He said that there he thinks I struck on something, which was very kind of him. My ideas went far into speculation because I like the movie so much. It sent me perhaps too far. I think he likes it so well because it's such a developed comedy as a comedy without the restraints of realism, within the restraints of a more serious purpose of an elaboration of what dancing really means. He particularly agreed with my analysis of the types of dancing. My point was that tap dancing is the perfect distillation of art in an age of anxiety. It's about restlessness, but it is a restlessness that gains you self-control. It is perfectly mm. individualistic, so you have to face yourself, but at the same time it is good for crowds. It does not depend on two people or four people or 16 people to do certain figures. You can do it alone and you can do it with other people. And it requires a certain form of self-control, but it does allow your restlessness to show up and to be worked through. In that sense, it really is great therapy for a depression. I don't mean that as a psychiatric statement. I mean that from my own experience of restlessness. That's the first of the three dances we see. The second is a cowboy dance, which has a certain individualism of its own, different because it's not about working out anxiety, it's about peacocking, it's about strutting your stuff and making <laughs> that into a good thing by beautifying it. It takes your confidence, whether your general attitude or just the confidence with which you approach dancing, and it dignifies it by making it more beautiful, more structured, and therefore able to be shared with others. It allows you to take pleasure in and cooperate with the strutting of others. It makes pride compatible and with Stillman also agreed with this and then I suggested something he wisely refused 
The third dance he introduces to us, the only one that's truly sophisticated, the sambola is a mix of cha-cha-cha, tango, and a generic motion moving in circles. That mm-hmm. tells you three things. First, moving in a circle. Secondly, the tango moving forward. And thirdly, the moving in mirror imaging of each other of the cha-cha-cha. Those are the three kinds of motion that are brought together in the sambola. And those are the three kinds of moving together. The coming together is a moving in relation to one another in a circle. The going together somewhere is the moving forward of the tango. And that leads, unlike in the tango, to the mirroring of each other, to the imitation of each other and the executing of things together, which are both the same and different. Wow. Yeah, that's interesting. The other thing with the Sambola to try to think about is the title of it as being the devil's dance. It's a joke about the Lambad, the forbidden dance. And partly it's because unlike the other dances, this is non-American. It's not Fred Astaire and it's not cowboys. It comes from Latin America. What happens south of the border is that the passions rule. The mix in the Sambola is actually very calculated. You have a bit of the tango, but anybody who has seen the tango knows that it's an intensely erotic dance right. and the cha-cha-cha can get out of hand in a certain sense as well this is an erotic dance and if you do not have both the preparation he gives you and the specific combination he gives you this could turn into an artful eroticism that takes over your being in the literal sense of what we call getting caught in the moment losing control of yourself that's real and experienced Well, another way of looking at this is Stillman's recommendation of social dance is often, at least by the characters that make a case for it, fairly unspecified. So they don't go into the kind of analyses that you were just giving us of those dances. One striking thing about Last Days of Disco, for example, is there's a lament about there was a big dearth of dancing from about 1969 to the advent of disco in 77 or so. And there's not much discussion of the fact that social dance had a lot of changes prior to that dearth. There's a wonderful documentary, I cannot remember the director's name, but it's just called Twist. And this documentary shows you how the twist and a number of dances that came along with it were significant because they tore the couple apart that you dance now individually. Whereas previously, most dances with tap and certain moves and some of these jive swing dances being an exception, typically the dance was focused around the partner. And we could even take it back further to the 19th century or the 18th century and talk about line dances or to look at country western square dances where the focus of a dance is more the community, less the couple. So I think those are all significant distinctions. And Stillman's characters themselves, I don't see a lot of that kind of discussion or analysis. Dancing exists or it doesn't exist. Yeah, I think that uh, you can think about dancing as a certain experience with its history. And I hope to get to that when we turn to Last Days of Disco. What makes Damsels in Distress unique It's the only time a dance craze is proposed and dance is argued for on this kind of basis, social transformation and mental sanity. This is what tipped me off to thinking that the problem with these characters is that they're both way too individual and way too universal and they don't have the in-between that's supposed to be a society. Violet does think of it explicitly, okay, I have a suicide prevention center. (laughs) The plaque for prevention in suicide center fell. (laughs) (laughs) They have to put that back in there. That's a meaningful slip. And in that case, you have one kind of dancing, the individualistic tap dancing, that can work out your anxieties. And that's supposed to be psychological or individual. But she also talks about social revolution. She doesn't talk about Gandhi or Lenin as the most important people like other people would. 
she talks about Chubby Checker because he created a twist and her silly ideas about who started the Waltz and the Charleston, which yeah. in the end credits are revealed in all their silliness. But she mentions the Waltz and the Charleston and the twist, which are a historical progression. It's not because she has reflected on these things. What she has noticed is that the dance revolution is a revolution in society. And being that dance comes from dance music, this is straight out of Plato. A revolution in music is a revolution in regimes. This is why she names musicians. She wants to start a dance craze, but the three revolutionaries are musicians, not dancers. So it's not for the stare. It's fictional creator of the Charleston dance. She says people think that dance crazes are organic, community invents this step, but it's actually a distinct inventor in most cases. And again, I would refer to this documentary on the twist. These were steps that often had been developed organically on dance floors. Certain dance entrepreneurs would put them together and market them as a dance. But it actually really is this combination of community work and individual work that gets a lot of these dance crazes going. And that does seem to be an important theme in damsels. How much should the idiosyncratic individual have a role and how much should the community have a role? And there's more to say about that with the contrast between Violet on one hand and Lily on the other. I completely agree with you here. Now, of course, again, the reason she emphasizes founders outside of the fact that this is an important idea is also because she wants to be one herself. It's her self-interest. This is what makes it so important. The Chappie Checker was not a dancer. He was a singer. She is not a Mm -hmm. singer. None of these people are musical. This is ultimately the cause of the failure. Yeah, she needs a band. The sound comes into you and brings out of you motion. That is a very important thing. So the question there is, how do you tie people together? You can see who these people are individually. Just like you have to think through the plot to tie them together as a plot, what would tie people together to have a dance craze? The music has to do it. There has to be something that affects everybody. The point of the movie is to say that somebody like Whit Stillman can give you the theory, but he can't give you the music. That's absolutely right. And that's connected to the fact that we do see two semi-successful instances of Violet and company encouraging dance. One of them is explicitly social dance, and that's the cowboy dancing. So they're able to be successful when they tap into an already existing dance craze. The other time, though, is at the frat party Violet is able to throw her enthusiasm into this generic contemporary disco pop stuff. Probably not music that Stillman feels highly favorable towards. She says, oh, this is a golden oldie. It's a not very impressive specimen of 90s techno disco. Nonetheless, they are able to make that party better by throwing themselves into it. Here's the not so great music we've got today, but we're going to just run with it and we're going to show these frat boys a good time. Even that lesser music is presented as having opportunities for semi-social dance. Yep. So long as you obey the rules that there has got to be some melody to give pleasure, there has got to be some rhythm to which you can dance, and it Mm -hmm. cannot be so convoluted or so fast or whatever because it would interrupt the dance. And you're right that that's an opening In the other case, cowboy dancing, that seems both more deliberate on the part of the girls and they play a more important part in it. At the frat boy party, they just happen upon this music. The only choice is to use it for dancing. But I do believe that you're also right about the other case that sometimes you have to work with what you've got and make the best of it. How much choice, how much power do you have in organizing? Yeah, maybe you can't really pull off introducing the Sambola, but maybe you could get your peers going to an existing Texas line dancing thing and that would be good enough. 
it's certainly a beginning. And the yeah. movie is all about this. What kind of beginnings fail and what kind of beginnings have some kind of chance of success. None of the failures, that is to say, in the story is permanent. Even once you right. think that maybe they should deserve to be permanent, like Lily and the grad student from France. That seems like that guy's a moron and in a certain way is corrupt and he's proud of his corruption. He wants to say that he's much better than Vulgarians who are corrupt. But it turns out that there is a possibility of redemption for this too. And that's, I think, part of the point there, that you have to see how these are beginnings and which ones are good and workable. Yeah, that brings up two points about, well, Stillman films in general and then Damsels. A professor of mine named Mary Nichols has described in an essay as Whit Stillman's comic art is always very merciful. There's not really villain characters anywhere to be found. If you go back to the other films, with maybe the exception of the club owner Barry in Last Days of Disco, and also Von Sloniker in, in Metropolitan, there's not many unambiguous villainous characters. Another thing I would say, damsels in what you were talking about with beginning points, Stillman wants to say where we are in modern society, we've gotten about as low as we can go in terms of the damage caused by some of the recent social changes. Again, the mindset shouldn't be lamenting decline. The mindset should be we really have declined to a, a rock bottom level, at least on a number of issues. And the thing to do now is to see what we can start that's new. It's, of course, it will incorporate traditions and elements from past things, but that's where the mindset needs to be. It's a much more hopeful mindset, and, and that's one of the things I just really love about this film. It does point to maybe particularly young people that, hey, let's think about ways in which we could start reform projects that actually they begin by making our own lives and our own friendships and love affairs better, but they could wind up having much larger impacts. Yes. Part of it is a thinking through of his art. He was always about pointing out there's something good here. People look down on disco, but there's something good here. Yes. People look down on preppy types, there's something good there. Yeah. And these good things could add up. For the first time, you get a milieu where there's a future. Yeah. But now you have the group at the end. It might be unique in his movies. Right. There's not just pairs or just a few individuals. They literally have a future together for at least two more years. And who knows what beyond that? And what they're doing has a future for those years, but maybe it will live as a club in that college. That's, That's a good a... point. They have gathered a small group around them. They're putting on the Fred Astaire musical. And so even if Lily's not around, Violet has gathered some people, men and women. That's the ambition of Damsels in Distress. It shows you a number of failures and a lot of silliness, but all of it can actually be worked through and you get to see how they begin to work through it so that they don't fall apart. Not just being an individual or not just being part of a social phenomenon, the spirit of the times, a fashion or a trend, but being a small group which retains its actuality, its immediacy and urgency and is also possibly opening up into something greater that really is universal. Who knows? There's potential there and actuality. We're settled on what the predicament is. There's way too much individualism and you don't know whether you can turn to somebody else or whether you should allow somebody else to turn towards you. But like it or not, both what is new for us and what is old for us is going to be new for kids. Somebody getting into college, everything past, present and future is new to them. Mm -hmm. Somebody who discovers Fred Astaire, well, that's new to him. Mm -hmm. It's not new to me, but it is new to him. It's important to think through that newness and to see how it can be both a learning process and an experience. You get so many failures in terms of in distress because these kids need experience. And the question is, within what boundaries could that experience turn them to each other rather than away from each other? 
make them a bit hopeful about the future rather than ashamed of themselves of each other if not downright cynical which could happen often does happen yeah one way of thinking about that how would the qualities of lily and violet be perhaps brought together there's a very interesting conversation towards the end of the film it's the last conversation between lily and violet they have kind implicit criticisms of one another Violet's making a case against the idea of cool. There's always an element of cruelty to the cool crowd that's set off by Lily saying, I thought that you and Rose were the cool crowd. <laughs> Lily says there needs to be a core group of people that are committed to common standards and normality. So there's a really strong criticism there of the idiosyncratic searching for old cultural forms that characterizes Violet and I guess we should say Stillman also. Lily on the one hand is cool but she's on the other hand committed to normality and critical of this idiosyncratic nature of Violet but we also see in the film that she's very unexperienced and parochial artichokes yes. are new for her countless things that she's never experienced so it's a very interesting contrast where both of them might be able to fill in the gaps of the other. Violet's cultivation might be able to improve someone like Lily. Lily's reminding Violet that, hey, what really matters maybe is not so much the idiosyncratic, the cultivation of those things, but the standards of the common opinion group. Violet is open to that. Violet is not a prideful, snobbish hipster who just wants to come up with her own clique. Stillman is doing something interesting there with these two characters who don't meet our archetypes of snobs or whatever the opposite of a snob is. Kind of, both those characters are mixtures of democratic and aristocratic qualities, but in different ways. Lily talks about this in political terms as the many and the few. She mm -hmm. says, how many eccentric personalities do we really need? Right. Most of us have got to be centric, not eccentric. The few of you may be eccentric and that's fine, but everybody can't end up being eccentric. And that's an explicit criticism, I believe, of the dance craze. You're thinking about the dance craze wrong because you want to be too much of a founder. With you, this is going to be too eccentric. Uh -huh. You'd have to understand that most people have to stay centric and deal with that. Offer them something that they like. And she talks about this as well. She says, I like your fashion sense. I like what you do with sense. She gets that these things are pleasant and improve your life in practical, immediate ways that other people can enjoy about you as well. If you smell nice and look nice, other people will take pleasure in your presence as well. And they might want to imitate you, of course. These are both superficial things that can appeal to everybody. But also there are things that can be shared. And of course, that means that they can be taken on by everybody. Those are centric rather than eccentric. The only thing eccentric there is her ability. I mean, Violet. But mm -hmm. everybody wants to look good. Everybody wants to dress well. Not as badly as she does. And not with the same daring, maybe. They don't want to risk looking eccentric, for example. Mm -hmm. But people like it. One can disapprove tremendously of the taste in music or clothes of young people, but not say that they're not trying to show off. Of course they are. And right. mostly they're trying to show off in a healthy way. We only see a few characters who dress in black and want to destroy the fraternities. Those are the only people reprehensible in this sense. And in another sense, too, they want to tear down the only institution we see on campus that's recognizable. Stillman is yeah. trying to say, we're already super individualistic. If there's something left of the past, try and make it work. Don't try to tear it down. Yeah. Don't make sure that you've leveled every last bit of the ruins. It's bad enough we have to live in the ruins. Let's make the most of it, not the least of it. Yes. The one exception to my rule, no villains among characters in 
damsels would be that editor, the wolf, who is just, as Violet says, a model journalist, really only about tearing things down according to some kind of egalitarian imperative. And he's also political yeah. in that sense. He wants to use the yeah. administration to ruin other people's experiences. A very common situation these days, unfortunately. Individualism does turn revengeful. If mm -hmm. it will not be satisfied in a good way, it will satisfy itself in a bad way. Yeah. If the elitist things or eccentric will not help out the centric, the centric will take their revenge. Yeah, so the Roman letter clubs in Damsels in Distress, we should explain the Greek system is a Latin system. It's one of these absurd little fantasy things. Um, the paper wants to get rid of them because they're elitist. But Stillman has this brilliant thing that he puts in a mouth of violence. You're saying, A, they're morons, and B, they're elitists. They cannot, by definition, be both. So the characters really defend the idea that A is the more correct here. These people really are. Morons is not nice, but they're highly uneducated and highly incapable. And that's why Violet's group wants to help them. <laughs> This whole aggressive journalistic progressivism, at least on this one issue, it's in utter contradiction with itself. For our last segment on damsels in distress, let's shift to this point of view. The girls versus the journalists fighting over the fraternities. We know how okay. this ends. The girls lose yet again. The fraternities yeah, go down. Yeah, that's true. And as Harvard has proved, this is literally the truth about America in our time. First of all, Violet has to explain to the new girl Lily, who comes from a normal college, that it, this is not a Greek letter system, it's a Roman letter system. Mm -hmm. Now, Americans know Roman letters, they don't know Greek letters. That's what's right. elitist about fraternities. Stillman is saying, if only these people acted as it were more normal, everybody would see how much like everybody else they already are. The Greek letters aren't there to introduce you to a completely other world than American colleges. What's inside is exactly what's outside. And he pushes this one step further. In what sense are frat boys morons? They're uneducated and unsophisticated, but more specifically, they're just not good with words. These people do not know how to speak. And I believe that is in a certain sense true, that women are just better at speech than men, especially mm -hmm. when they get to college. This caricature, that's what he wants to capture, that these guys are inarticulate. They find it hard to find words or to match words to things and to experiences. What comes natural is drinking beer. They know that drinking beer is what they do when they have fun and when they're depressed, they can't really connect the two and they cannot see that this may be a problem. Right. But they know that right. these things are there and they can't put two together. They're also throwing a little war. They have their little Roman days. They have a war. That's what boys bring to the table, barbarism. And the form of that spirit is Chris the Wolf, with his name, both sophisticated sounding and malevolent, and who dresses in black and wants to look tough, but is just sarcastic. That is also a destructive spirit. But the frat boys aren't actually destructive. They just bring the destructive spirit that is maybe somehow necessary. You need men, after all, in college, not just women. The caricature of the men is that they're so primitive, they're like fake Vikings. The caricature of the women is that, mm. that they're so sophisticated or adult, they're like fake mothers. Yeah, they're not a just a problem there. If you tame men too much, all you've got is contempt for them, like Violet has for her boyfriends. One sign that she and Fred are going to hit it off, she asks a question, the answer to which he knows and which puzzles her greatly. He's saying, yeah, decadence has declined. Yeah. We've become yeah. vulgar even in our immorality. What could that possibly mean? Now, she's a college girl with interesting studies and all sorts of ideas, but she's very clearly half-educated at best. It's also the only honest conversation that you could call collegiate. 
college kids talking about books they've read. Right. There is a lot of mockery in the film of the low state that education has come to. That You get this with the Ed students not being able to kill themselves when they try to commit suicide. You get this with Fred's character, who's a seventh year Ed student. You briefly hear that Heather is enrolled in a procrastination seminar. Um, <laughs> they all so, just don't know it. <laughs> the most intellectual course is this flit lit course, which is about the dandy tradition in literature, highly specialized. And Violet hasn't really been attending class. So there's a lot of digs in this film about American liberal education. And one of the fun things about the Roman letter conceit, it brings more vividly home to us this idea of decline of civilization. So when they have their Roman letter days, the really barbarian males, the inhabitants of Dor, Dorm, storm out and attack the fraternity system party. And the gals are there, they're dressed maybe like the graces and they comment upon this. And by the way, the fighting is among the most pathetic you've ever seen. Maybe that was an error. Maybe that's intentionally pointing to your issue about the manliness here. Even when these guys act like ancient barbarians and ancient Romans, they can't even really pull it off. But the dialogue says, I fear this is what happens when civilization is rotted by decadence on the inside and assaulted by decadence from the outside. I fear such a civilization is destined to fail and be replaced by something else. Violet says, and maybe that's a good thing. So again, this sense of being at the end of civilization, by changing it to the Roman letter clubs, that makes it a little more vivid for most Americans. I completely agree with that. The other thing is that instead of sports at this college, you only have bean bags. One of the boys who is a smooth operator, at least he cheats on women. He has two revelations. One of them is that he needs his bean bag, and that's why he keeps following Violet around. He backpack. uses it like a hacky sack, yeah. That's the pathetic version of manliness, but of course, sports are a pathetic version of manliness compared to war. And the other thing is that he learns to call women bitches. Yeah. Just like yeah. Lily shows you that she calls men creeps. She calls Fred a creep. And that shows you that this is how women in America will reject preemptively male attraction they don't like. The man who really is a creep, her boyfriend, she never talks that way about him because she's mm. attracted to Xavier. And right. so he can't be a creep. This other guy who's a much nicer guy and would never treat her that way. Well, you know, he's a creep just to throw him away. And she's suspicious of Violet. Do you really want to spend time with this guy? Ugh. And that shows one form of contempt. The other one is, you see, with the Frank character, the cheating former boyfriend of Violet. He learns to call a girl who dumped him bitch because she has rejected him, not preemptively. It doesn't even show that much pleasure as discovery in using this word. That suggests something about how relations between men and women will degenerate. A certain aggressiveness, preemptive or retrospective, will make them treat each other like enemies and take a certain pleasure in looking down on each other. That's right. Yeah, so I think Frank's use of the word bitch, it's just another moment where the general tone of light comedy is lifted and we see just a glimpse of what non-comic barbarism in our day really is and what the kind of problems at contemporary colleges really consist of. So there's a lot of young men like Frank. They're ignorant in the other sense. Unlike in this movie, people don't know how to socialize. And about the basis of socialization, whether it's music or dancing or conversation, which are the staples of with Stillman movies. Yeah. Well, just to say the obvious, by Stillman saying that these frat boys don't know the colors, that's comic exaggeration for the fact that a lot of contemporary young college men know next to nothing about anything we would expect them to have gathered from liberal education. 
Great, this then is the end of the first part of our conversation, Damsels in Distress. We'll go on next to Last Days of Disco. <laughs>